0: Welcome to Commercial Real Estate Investing from A to Z, the ultimate guide for real estate investors. I'm your host, Steph Boldrini. We cover everything you need to know from finding and analyzing properties to financing and managing your investments. Tune in every week for experts, insights, and tips so you can make your commercial real estate dreams come true. And in today's episode, we are chatting with one of New York's top commercial real estate broker. I am super excited to have him here. We are breaking down this interview into two episodes. I could have talked to him for hours. But in this episode, we are reviewing why should a broker represent only one party? Is buying prime real estate at a top price a great strategy or not? And if yes, how should you approach it? And also, what are some techniques that buyers and sellers have used when purchasing or selling a property that may not be best practices? We are chatting with Bob Knackel, head of the New York Private Capital Group for JLL. Here we go. Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm extremely excited to have you here. You have been popping up on my Twitter feed And uh, you're extremely successful person and really appreciate you making the time to join us today. But first, why don't you tell us a little bit about you?
1: Sure. Well, Stephanie, it's great to uh, be here with you today. Thanks for having me on. Um, So I grew up in a little town called Maywood, New Jersey uh, in Bergen County. Went to uh, school at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. Got my first job in real estate between freshman and sophomore year, uh, working in market research at Coldwell Banker Commercial. Uh, My next summer, I went back and ran that that summer internship program. Uh, My third summer, I got my New Jersey real estate license and was an assistant to an industrial broker. And I was showing industrial space to industrial tenants. And uh, then when I got out of school in 1984, went to work for CB uh, in Manhattan and wanted to sell buildings. So I was in the building sales department. I met Paul Massey there. We agreed to work together and just split everything 50-50. That was the start of a 30-year partnership with Paul. We were partners for four years at CB. Uh, Left there in 1988 to form our own firm, Massey Nackle Realty Services. Uh, We grew that firm from just the two of us and a secretary to 250 people in four offices, sold it to Cushman and Wakefield at the end of 2014 and uh, left Cushman in mid-2018 and came to JLL with 53 other folks, all of whom had worked with me at MK. And uh, I've been at, uh, at JLL since and still selling buildings and fortunately still enjoying it as much as I did when I first got into the business.
0: And I think you're being a little bit humble there because you're one of the top brokers in New York. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, you know, I've been around for a long time, so I've sold a lot of buildings. As of last week, uh, I've closed 2,252 transactions. That's uh, over $21 billion of sales and um, sell all kinds of properties in New York City with a focus uh, primarily on multifamily and land. So I've been very, very fortunate. You can't rack up those kind of numbers without some really great people to work with. And over the years, I've had some really great partners and colleagues that uh, have helped me get uh, get those totals amassed.
0: That is truly incredible. Congratulations. From what I researched, part of your business is really focused on representing one Party only. Can you share a little bit about that and the reasoning, etc.,
1: please? Sure. Well, you know, as a broker that sells buildings, you can represent buyers, sellers, or both. Most brokers represent uh, both. I've always focused my entire career on seller representation. In fact, I've on twenty-two hundred and fifty of the twenty-two hundred and fifty-two transactions uh, I've done, I've been the exclusive agent for the seller. Uh, I had two fluky deals over the years where I represented buyers, but that's not the normal thing that's uh very unusual. I just feel that as a broker, <clears throat> working with control is important. you know many many sellers are optimistic about the value of their property. Uh, And when the value gets down to the point where it is truly market, normally there are a few buyers that would buy at that price. Uh, And if you're a buyer rep representing one of those buyers, even if you have a buyer who's willing to pay the right price, you still maybe only have a a 25 or or 33% chance of making a commission. So I always... Wanted to work on the seller side for a couple of reasons. One, we like to avoid conflicts of interest, so we don't represent buyers. Uh, And two, I don't like to have to remember what I say to anybody, so I'm always just working for the seller, trying to get the highest possible price. I don't have to remember what I say, and that that's worked out well over the years. And I, I think that as a broker, to the extent that you can specialize in something uh, and easily articulate what you do, how you do it. It enables you to differentiate yourself from others. So back at the old company, we used to say, we only represent sellers. We only sell properties and we uh, only work on exclusives. And uh, that was something that was very easy to convey, uh, easy to understand uh, and let clients know exactly where we stood
0: with regards to the new york market right it's a very unique market and i'm on a call a monthly call with george ross uh trump's previous attorney and whether he has a good reputation there or not he always talks about some of the best deals were the highest paid for deals can you attest to that and how does one go about the, the first couple of years of paying top, top, top price, waiting on that until it becomes the next phenomenal deal in New well, York? I'll
1: I tell you, I, I think that deal size really doesn't matter in terms of complexity. Um, in fact, um, I, I've won the most ingenious deal of the year, here in New York, which is an award that uh, the Real Estate Board of New York gives out every year. Wow, um, I've won that a couple of times. And one time I won it for a transaction that was only $7.5 million. So it doesn't have to be a really, really giant deal to be complex, intricate, and require ingenuity and creativity. But in terms of buying property here, you know, I'll, I'll illustrate it with a story that there, there used to be an investor in New York named Saul Goldman, um, Saul Goldman owned more property than anybody else in New York. Uh, I had the good fortune to meet with him back in the mid 80s when I, I started in the business. And I said to him, Mr. Goldman, you, you own about 500 buildings. How were you able to do that? How, yeah. how did you amass such a big portfolio? And he said, Bob, I paid more than anybody else. The way he did it and that's the way you have to do it and uh you know i applaud him because he built in just an absolutely unbelievable uh portfolio and even though at the time he may have been paying a lot uh in retrospect he really didn't pay that much
0: so yeah i i all really wonder how do people doing those first two years when you're paying top price and there hasn't been real value add, do they have huge reserves for the first two years? How do they survive the very beginning of paying top price to accumulate this phenomenal uh, portfolio?
1: No, I I think people have to have money in reserve. A lot of times, particularly the most, most popular type of transaction in New York is multifamily. And often, regardless of what the cap rate is, there's very little free cash flow in the first few years so you have to be able to you know hope you you break even and uh, a lot of folks are really counting on appreciation but uh, it's challenging if you're paying top price you have to have reserves to be able to make it through the first couple of years.
0: Definitely. Well, let's move on to one of your tweets that you said you have seen it all. You have seen it all from buyers, and you have seen it all from sellers. Um, what are some techniques that buyers have used when purchasing a property after during contract?
1: Yeah, well, I'll say I've seen a lot in all all those transactions I've done, but I probably haven't seen it all. I'm still surprised. (laughs) Uh, It seems like on every deal, there's a new thing that comes up that I wasn't prepared for. (laughs) Um, But um, I will say from a, a buyer's perspective, you know, buyers try to get contingencies to their transactions to the extent they can. Um, that's something that uh, is very rare in New York. We we very rarely have any post contract execution due diligence, uh, and by not having that post execution due diligence, the contract deposit is hard when it goes up there are times when people will you know make claims of breaches if they don't want to close that's uh, generally difficult to uh, to prove but probably the most common ish area that creates a, an issue for a buyer is environmental and there are a number of environmental issues we have here we have lead paint we have asbestos we have you know potential uh, oil leaks uh, the number of buildings still using heating oil. Some of those tanks are very, very old. So you know, a lot of buyers will ask for an environmental contingency, uh, stating that if they if they find anything that is adverse, you know, there, there may be something referenced in the phase one report that gives them concern that they want to check out. They'll ask for a contingency. And I always tell my seller, look, they could find one tablespoon of heating oil on the the ground and say that's an adverse condition and not want to close. So we always try to flip the leverage on that environmental contingency and say, okay, well, we'll give you the contingency. However, we have the ability to either agree that you found an adverse condition, remediate the problem and make you close or we as the seller can give you a credit for the cost of that remediation and make you close, we could decide to give you back your deposit and cancel the contract. But it's not your decision, it's our decision as a seller. That way, if a relatively minor issue comes up, you have the ability to remediate it and it's not a free look for the buyer.
0: Very, very good tip there. In terms of the sellers side of things. What are some things that they try to maybe last minute change it that it's not good practice and people should just not
1: be doing it? The sellers who I find get in the most trouble are sellers who either don't want to do full due diligence on their own property uh, or know that there's, or suspect there may be a problem, so they don't want to do due diligence. Yeah, so, For instance, in in development transactions in New York, there's something called a massing study that's required, which tells you the shape the building can have, how much mass you can have on the site. and And New York City is an as of right jurisdiction. So our zoning tells us what type of building you can build, how much building you can build, and what shape that building can have. But it's very, very complicated. Even the the best professionals sometimes have to research certain conditions to figure out what can be done and what can't be done. And I've always found that the the sellers who don't want to pay to have a massing study done on a development site, there's Uh, probably a problem there. And so you want to make sure you have that done. Uh, You also, regardless of the type of property you have, you want to make sure that you have uh, an environmental report, a phase one study in our multifamily properties here, Our rent regulation system is a labyrinth of rules, (laughs) regulations, guidelines. And so to do very in-depth due diligence to figure out whether your tenants are legal tenants, the rents you're charging are legal rents, whether the unit was deregulated properly or not, uh, it really takes a a bunch of professionals to figure this out. Uh, And if you don't take the time to figure that out, you really don't know what you're selling. So those are pitfalls that I see sellers get into trouble with, where they just don't want to spend the money to figure out what it is that they own. And if they don't know what they own, I don't know what they're selling. And it it has become problematic over the years. So there are are many times when we'll tell a seller, look, you have to do this, you don't it's very questionable whether you can even sell the property or not. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a number of things. It's, it's important to know what you're selling. And, uh, you know, if a seller doesn't want to investigate those things, they probably are either aware of a problem or suspect that there's a problem and they don't want other people to know about it.
0: We'll be continuing this interview next week. And for our listeners in Northern California, we are going to be hosting Fannie Mae's chief economist, in June in person and he will be giving his economic forecast. He has been incredibly accurate on his forecasts and he has been named one of Bloomberg's and Business Week's 50 most powerful people in real estate. I hope you all can join me. I will put the link to sign up under show notes. It's going to be on June 8th and I will be there. And I look forward to meeting all of you on June 8th, and I will see you next time.